This week on the Defined Podcast, we speak with Robert Lauko, founder and head of research at Liquidity, a DeFi lending protocol and the issuer of the LUSD stablecoin. Following the fallout from CeFi services such as Voyager, BlockFi, and Celsius, we were once again reminded of the core values of decentralization, which Liquidity tries to apply to the fullest. LUSD is backed only by ETH. They are governance-free and have no centralized front-end. Before we get into the building blocks and the trade-offs of their configuration, let's hear an introduction to Liquidity from Robert himself. Robert, it's so great to have you on the Defined Podcast. Welcome. Hi, Camila. Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. Let me just explain Liquidity in a nutshell. It's basically a borrowing protocol that issues its own stablecoin to borrowers. And as you already mentioned, um, borrowing is only possible against Ether, used as collateral. So you deposit Ether and then you can borrow up to around 90% of your Ether value. So that's already one of the benefits that you can borrow up to this 90-91% of your Ether value. So it's very capital efficient. And this is thanks to the way that liquidity liquidates positions or borrowers that uh, uh, are underwater because you need to maintain this 110% collateral ratio when you drop Below that, there is a very specific procedure um, that I can maybe tell a few words later uh, about, but this kind of stability pool mechanism allows the system to liquidate those positions very quickly or instantaneously. And then, um, as a consequence, it makes it possible to offer that much value for your collateral. So that's one benefit. And the other big benefit is that the loans are interest-free, which means that you only pay a small upfront fee at the beginning when you take out your loan. It's usually 0.5%. It can go up in certain situations, but most of the time it's only that, 0.5%. So you basically pay that or it it works that it would be added to your debt. So you, when you pay back, you would pay back this extra debt corresponding to the fee. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, yeah, there are a few other um, properties that you already highlighted, like that it's completely... Uh, immutable, governance-free, and decentralized. Um, we are not even running a front-end, and so on. That's super interesting. Uh, to kind of go back to uh, some of the points you said, I would love to understand how you can offer uh, ETH-backed loans at almost 0%. So I, I guess like the, the lending fee there would be that initial 0.5%. Uh, which is uh, way lower than you would have to pay for, for loans almost anywhere else. So how are you able to, to do this? Yeah, the short answer is that we are like a central bank where the protocol itself can mint its own currency, the LUSD, which is obviously a US dollar-packed stablecoin. And by doing so, it doesn't need to pay interest on its own or on the money it gives out as a loan because it can print its own money too. Uh, give to the borrowers. So that's the short answer. Now, of course, just minting a stable coin doesn't ensure that this token is really a stable coin. It ha needs to have some mechanism that keeps it closely packed to the dollar. And that's where like we, we also took some, let's say, decisions that are a bit different from other protocols or competitors. We are not regulating the monetary supply through interests or variable rates, but we have something we call a redemption, which is a bit different from just basically getting back your collateral when repaying your loan. That's not what we 
uh, mean when, when I say redemption, but what I mean is that any holder of LUSD, like no matter whether you just bought it on the market or borrowed it yourself, can exchange it at face value for Ether. It means that let's say you own 100 uh, LUSD and you can now exchange it or redeem it for $100 worth of Ether. And through this mechanism, we can ensure that there is always like a minimum value or a hard price uh, floor that guarantees that whenever the LUSD would fall below, it would bounce back through this arbitrage mechanism. So this is the trick. And thanks to the redemption mechanism and also thanks to this very efficient and uh, yeah, liquidation mechanism, we have a band basically between $1 and $1.10 um, between which the price can move even though there are forces that keep it closer to $1. And, but they, these mechanisms are really independent of interest rates. So that's why we can, oh, like there is no need for interest in our system. Okay. In order to uh, to maintain that peg, uh, you you do it by ensuring that uh, users can always redeem LUSD for ETH uh, at uh, you know at, at a value that that means that LUSD is equal to one one dollar. Um, what are some of the the um, risks that you see could kind of throw this mechanism off, like? You know, uh, is there anything that could make this system spiral, um, you know, like like a black swan event? Like, a, a, is there any kind of run on, on the bank situation where, you know, multiple uh, borrowers try to redeem at the same time? Um, and maybe that that would throw LUSD off its peg like i don't know like what what are some of the 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 edge case scenarios that could happen with with this model yeah so that's a good question and uh speaking of the redemption mechanism i think there are no extra risks in that regard but there are a few kind of maybe inconveniences or surprises attached to the redemption mechanism because what really happens when somebody redeems a thousand LUSD, for example, is that the system would use this uh, amount to repay the riskiest position. Like the riskiest borrower with the lowest collateralization ratio would basically see his or her debt being repaid. And in return, the system gives an equivalent amount of his or her like ether to the redeemer. So it basically means that somebody else just repaid your loan. You may like it or not, in certain situations, you be you could even be happy about it because it may save you from a liquidation because you are already at the bottom end of the scale if you sort all the borrowers by collateral ratio. But it can also be an inconvenience or just something that may not be as uh, yeah, usual as in other systems. Um, but what's maybe even more important for the system's safety is that it always tries to remain over collateralized by um, a healthy margin. And it's not only this 110%, which I mentioned that like an individual borrower can, in theory, take out a loan of up to 90% of the collateral, but um, as a whole or in aggregate, the system keeps um, or maintains a minimum collateralization ratio of 150% as to have like the safe margin or buffer. It does so by 
having a certain mode called the recovery mode, which would kick in when the system's uh, total or aggregate collateralization falls below this threshold. But um, yeah, overall, this would lead to kind of disincentives for people to be too risky and thereby, um, yeah, the whole user base would hopefully behave in a way that uh, the system remains always fully and not just fully, but like over collateralized by this, this margin so that all the redemption requests can be fulfilled and, and nobody would have to fear that the LUSD suddenly loses uh, the backing. What about, you know, the fact that it's 100% backed by ETH? Uh, it's obviously ex extremely subject to ETH volatility. So what if Ethereum uh, falls extremely quickly and liquidates a lot of positions uh, on, on liquidity? Um, I mean, I, I guess you've already seen that somewhat tested, uh, you know, in, in, in these past, you know, few weeks and months. But I don't know if... Um, if we've seen kind of an extremely sharp drop that, that would really put a stress in, in the system, like what are some of the safeguards for, for when that happens? Yeah, so we have seen a few events now, like uh, for the first one and a half years of operation, like one was even one month into our operation, so to say. When did you go on mainnet, sorry? That was on April 5th, 2021. And sometime in May, I forgot, maybe 18th, there was like a black day um, where there was this flash crash really out of the blue. So it, it wasn't clear why it really happened, but there were, I think, around 300 positions, like a third of the whole user base or borrower base was liquidated basically within a few minutes. And this proved like the efficiency uh, or like it was a real stress test for the liquidation mechanism, which mainly works through the stability pool. I can maybe go a bit uh, into detail uh, into that later. But yeah, this mechanism proved to work. And it also later became very important. Uh, for example, um, a few months ago, where it was, uh, I think, again, like sometime in, in May or June, when after, like it was the aftermath of the Terra collapse, when uh, there were a few big positions, like a huge position of 77 Ether, which was maybe worth hundred million dollars back then in our system. And this was the, the largest position ever liquidated in liquidity and one of the largest position in DeFi's, uh, in DeFi um, as a whole to be liquidated. And this caused, I mean, the liquidation itself went fine, but what happened afterwards was a bit less maybe um, uh, harder to digest for the liquidity system because it basically left behind a hole in the stability pool. So it sucked up like more than half or even two thirds of the LUSD that were in this pool. Um, so it emptied it like by almost. Uh, uh, and then what, what really happened is that as a consequence, now that the pool was empty, but the system was still paying out nice rewards in LQTY, which is our secondary token to the stability depositors. Now the rewards per or pro rata kind of uh, incentive went up. And that motivated more people like of the already like smaller LUSD supply because those tokens, they were burnt. Um, they were burnt in lieu of the borrower. So now other holders of LUSD, they rushed to deposit their LUSD to the stability pool, which was very attractive due to the high yield and which uh, 
in return led to like an upward pressure on the LUSD. So the peg uh, was broken a bit, like it went up to 104, 103. It, it now that kind of uh, stabilized again a bit, but it's still like suffering somewhat from like a demand shortage. Like people are not now borrowing as much as they used to be. That's for several reasons. And at the same time, the stability pool is paying out a comparably high reward to the LUSD depositors, which means that there is kind of a um, like excessive demand for holding and depositing LUSD. I see. Okay, interesting. Um, can you can you explain a bit more, just you know, to understand this whole dynamics better? We need to understand how exactly this stability pool works. And, and you said earlier, this is kind of a key difference in in how you know uh, liquidity the liquidity uh, protocol itself works. Yes. Yeah, so it's basically an insurance pool or an insurance fund, which. Uh, Permissionlessly allows anybody, any holder of LUSD, to deposit tokens like LUSD. Um, and what it does when somebody's position or borrower needs to be liquidated is that it simply burns the amount needed. Like if there was a debt of a million LUSD, then it would just take out the million LUSD from the pool and burn it. It would do this pro rata. So if the pool is much larger, everybody would just lose a small portion of their LUSD deposit. And in return, it gives um, the collateral, which is Ether, which was held by the borrower who got liquidated to the pool, or again, pro rata, it, uh, it would go to all the depositors in total. And given the fact that the liquidation happens just slightly below 110%, it usually means that there is a 9% or at least 8% net gain for the stability depositors from each liquidation. So when this huge liquidation happened, like the, the, the 77K position, there was like a, a really big, a few hundred K um, like liquidation gain that was paid out like at once in one day or even like in, in that, like with that transaction, which led to like a windfall, uh, uh, what is the word? Yeah, so a windfall for all the depositors. So that's it. And then there is this extra other incentive mechanism, which is a continuous payout of LQTY tokens to the pool depositors. It's more like a liquidity mining incentive. It goes down over time, like there is a holding schedule, a bit similar to Bitcoin, though it's more smooth. Um, yeah, so those are the two incentives, why you would become a stability pool depositor in the first place. So you have this um, one side of the protocol where borrowers can uh, take out, uh, can deposit ETH and take out a, a loan in LUSD in return. Uh, and they can borrow 90% of their value in ETH in LUSD. Uh, on, as a whole, this entire uh, system is meant to be uh, collateralized by 110% of ETH versus LUSD, right? Um, it's 150% in total, even though the individual positions can be as low as 110. 150. Okay. And then separately, uh, there is this stability pool, uh, which is a pool of LUSD deposits. Um, and that is meant to secure 
the uh, ETH-backed loans on the other side of the system so that when the collateral ratio drops below 110, the 110 minimum, and loans are liquidated, then that LUSD in the stability pool is used to buy the ETH that was liquidated. Exactly, and it buys it at a discount of around 9%. Uh, okay, so it buys that ETH that was liquidated, um, and what does it, and then it buys that ETH, and that ETH that it bought is distributed among the depositors of the stability pool. Yes, exactly. Okay, got it. And on top of ETH liquidations from the system, stability pool depositors also get these liquidity incentives in LQTY tokens. That's right, yes. That's an additional incentive. And so this, this stability pool, this like insurance fund, uh, to you is, is how you're, you know, that's, I guess like that's the key to how uh, you're able to kind of keep the system going and offer these like near 0% loans. Yeah, and, and, and in particular, the, the low um, minimum collateral ratio of 110% is made possible through the fact that the stability pool is very fast. It's almost instantaneous. It's as fast as you can send an Ethereum transaction. Whereas on other systems, there is a lengthy auction mechanism, which can take a few hours or at least minute, like several minutes during which time frame the Ether price can drop further. So in our case, there is no such risk because yeah, as fast as you can liquidate, um, as low or the, or the lower the risk um, of like a further price drop that you need to account for. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management, scams and hackers. My new sponsor, ZenGo Crypto Wallet, wants to change the game entirely by creating a crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability. ZenGo aims to be the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secure. After all, with no private key to steal, your crypto assets and NFTs are much more difficult to hack. Get started at zengo.com defiant and use code DEFIANT to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's C-E-N-G-O dot com slash DEFIANT. Terms and conditions apply, so check out their site for details. What makes liquidity a unique lending protocol is that depositors earn interest from liquidations as opposed to from borrowing rates that we usually see in other protocols, such as Maker or Compound. What sort of incentive mechanisms does Liquidity have to maintain this model? Do lenders receive anything upfront? Well, indirectly, they get a portion of the borrow fee. I mean, I mentioned this upfront fee of 0.5%. Uh, now, this fee goes to the stakers of the LQTY token. Like this other token, when it gets staked, it is entitled to receive a portion of the fee revenue. I mean, the entire fee revenue is just distributed among all the LQTY stakers. And now through this extra uh, liquidity incentive mechanism that gives or pays out LQTY rewards to the stability depositors, those depositors would indirectly also benefit from the fee revenue. By, because the, the LQTY token will kind of represent the net present value, so to say, of the future fee 
revenue. That brings me to the question of the purpose of the LQTY token other than, you know, serving as a liquidity incentive for depositors. Yeah, so the other incentive mechanism which uh, we have in our system is um, targeted towards the front-end operators. So the front-ends, they can basically decide which fraction or like which portion of this reward that usually goes to the stability depositors, they want to split off and keep themselves. Um, we call this a kickback mechanism. So basically they say what is kickback to the, the end user, like the stability depositor, and what remains, what portion remains with the front end. And that mechanism was intended, um, and it's still like the case, to incentivize like a multitude of front-end operators because we wanted to start like launch liquidity in a very decentralized fashion where we have at least like two dozens of front-ends like ready from the start. It worked out pretty well. So at least quantitatively speaking, we had a, a nice number of front-ends. Um, and they got some rewards, but uh, it turned out to be a bit like a, a race to the bottom. So now we have many or a few front-ends offering like 100% kickback, which means that they are like altruistic, or at least they are not reliant on this incentive to keep a portion of it for themselves. That's interesting. I definitely want to get more <clears throat> into the decentralized front-end um, aspect of, of liquidity. Uh, but before we do, I, I'd i love to just uh, take a step back and learn more about you. Like what what's your background? What got you into crypto and what led you to uh, start Liquidity? Yeah, so I'm actually a lawyer by training and I, I used to work as a lawyer quite a few years in several um, jobs. So I, I was a law clerk and, and a legal counsel. I didn't do kind of um, litigation in courts. Um, but uh, I always also had a very keen interest uh, related to everything tech and uh, more specifically computer science. I um, like coded in my youth. I like did some like student projects. And when I first heard about Bitcoin and I forgot exactly when it was, um, I was fascinated, but it wasn't enough to keep me really like fascinated. But then a few years later, I read in the news and I'm, I, I live in Switzerland in a crypto valley, so to say, because that's where I grew up in the canton of Zug, which then became uh, in, in 2015 and 16, the crypto valley. And that's like around the time when I read in the news about Vitalik Buterin founding Ethereum in my hometown, uh, so to say. And that's when really things kicked off and I started delving really deep into like everything related to blockchain. I went to meetups, I wrote articles, like small forum posts and, and blog posts. And eventually I was lucky enough to get in touch with a, a project called Definity. I mean, they are now uh, better known under the name Internet Computer. Um, and yeah, I became one of the first researchers and first employee in Switzerland. Uh, I did many things there. Um, I also had a chance to work really deeply on their consensus algorithm, but I also did some operations, community management and so on. And after more than two years working there, yeah, I kind of started looking into the fledgling DeFi ecosystem, which was unfolding in the Ethereum ecosystem. I mean, Definity didn't launch at that time. And I also had this kind of task to 
analyze them and see like what kind of applications you can build on top of a scalable blockchain um, infrastructure. And then more and more I got interested in, it was Compound and Maker back then more or less. And when, yeah, reading up on, on them, I, I had my own ideas how maybe I could make them more efficient and, and just more predictable as well. And that's yeah, how everything started. I eventually left Definity to start my own project, Liquidity. Very cool. So compared to uh, to Compound Maker, Ave, like what would you say are the the main differences or or even improvements that you're going for? Yeah, it all started with this idea of making liquidations more efficient, more rapid, so that we can lower the minimum collateralization and make the whole borrowing experience better and, and more efficient. And then when I started looking into the whole question of governance and, yeah, and, and what parts you want to be able to change and what should be governed by an algorithm, I realized that in some sense there is no need for a governance at least not for the parameters that can be defined by an algorithm which measures some variables or some of the activity of its users and it can re react to it accordingly. And then going further, we also realized as a team that we really want to push this decentralization as far as, 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 far as we can, which implied that we would only go for one collateral, which is Ether which also meant that we wouldn't need a governance to basically decide about adding other collateral assets. If Ether is the only asset, there is nothing to reason about in that respect. And, and, and I think the last piece that came a bit later was this, this decentralized front-end approach, um, uh, which yeah, complemented it. And, and those are the main aspects. And of course, the interest-freeness is, is one as well. It's a bit less... I mean, it, it, it's a really nice uh, kind of value proposition. It has a few trade-offs um, because it's not as easy to establish as maybe other properties that we wanted, but still, I think many people like it. And uh, yeah, those are the main differences or benefits. Okay, so um, faster liquidations uh, to be able to um, lower the collateralization ratio having the stablecoin be fully backed by ETH, uh, having a decentralized front-end, minimizing governance, um, and the uh, close to 0% uh, borrowing rate are kind of the, the main differences. That's a perfect summary. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so, okay, I, I think really interesting, this decision to back LUSD only on ETH. Um, so you you mentioned th this was to increase decentralization. Can you expand on that uh, a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so um, maybe first of all, it was clear that ETH would be the main, at least back then, it seemed to be the the asset that most people would want to borrow against because they they just want to hold Ether, which is like most well known of all tokens. Um, and it was also the only token that uh, the single collateral version of Maker offered as collateral back then, uh, before it kind of evolved into multi-collateral DAI. So this was kind of an obvious start. Now the question was, is there something else you want to have as collateral? Having another stablecoin as collateral was not even a question, 
um, at least in the beginning. I mean, I think it was still before our launch when, when Maker um, introduced USDC, uh, but that was like for me, like really the red line that, that I would never want to cross. Then speaking of other collateral assets, I mean, they weren't like, for example, staked ETH derivatives or like Lido or whatever weren't available back then. So that would have been an interesting discussion at least because they could be interesting as collateral, but they aren't as decentralized as Ether. Of course, they have extra added risks. Those weren't available. So the only, I think, option that would have been like an interesting mainstream uh, like asset or collateral would have been like some Bitcoin representation, like Rec Bitcoin. But even they have like their issues. They are not decentralized or not in a way that would be acceptable for us. And so, yeah, it, we just stick to our decision of, of going with these. And when you say USDC and uh, something like Rep Bitcoin are lines that you didn't want to cross, why is that? It also relates to the fact that we, we like we or our own protocol is not governable and not like update upgradable. So if there is anything that maybe they want to change or like the collateral asset like let's say changes its risk behavior, so that may lead to like consequences down the line. So maybe what happens if the collateral becomes much more volatile suddenly. So maybe then we would need to change the minimum collateral ratio, but we cannot change it because it's set in stone, it's immutable. So relying on, on somebody else's like product that is governable or, or that may change or may even like completely um, disappear in the worst case or be censored would be like, could have disastrous consequences for a protocol that it's is immutable itself. So if we had we want to go down that route, I think we wouldn't be able to do that like within this kind of realm of a completely decentralized protocol and completely immutable protocol. When you say that you couldn't even consider uh, doing something like staked ETH because they weren't even available back, back then, that means that right now you can't add it uh, because your protocol is not governable. So it means like whatever you put out on, you know, in April of last year has to be that way. Like it can't be changed. Uh, is that right? Like there's there's no way to change liquidity protocol from the smart contracts that were already uh, released last year. Yes. So it was immutable from the start. It's not Unlike other systems which go down a path towards decentralization or immutability, this one started completely um, immutable. And, and that's right. I mean, it is a limitation um, because we cannot change it. The only thing we can do is release a second version and then have some kind of migration from the old system to the new. Um, but having said that, I think given that we just went for ease, we know that we can say we went for the safest approach. We also um, maximized on the collateral, uh, sorry, on the Oracle design by having two Oracles and the fallback mechanism uh, to make it even more secure. Uh, I think that was like we maximized our efforts to keep the protocol in a shape that it can like work for for many years, even though we cannot change it. How long did you spend 
testing and kind of reviewing the protocol before launching it because I mean I, I can I can imagine for you know for any developer pushing something to production is you know it's, it's, it's a huge stress and you want everything to go right but for you it was like even more important since you can't change anything yeah that's a very good point and I think we spent around two-thirds of our like entire time like we started or I basically um, started with the idea in, in late 2019 and then I think around early summer like DeFi summer 2020 we already had our first more or less running prototype even we, we even had like a testnet version which people could play around with and then the whole like auditing process and internal testing really kicked off so it took then almost another year until we, we launched in, in April and that was I mean we did some improvements added like things here and there but the main logic was built like in, in four or five months are you planning to to have a, a v2 or, or would you do that that's I think something I wouldn't rule out uh, for the future it's not on our very short-term um, roadmap um, there's something else on our short-term roadmap I can mention maybe it's goes by the name Chicken Bonds. Chicken Bonds? Chicken Bonds, yes. Oh, Chicken Bonds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not Bones. Okay, yeah. we'll talk about Chicken Bonds. <laughs> All um, right. Apart from that, of course, we we have already started discussing like the long-term future of liquidity and, and we are soon going to a team retreat, um, which will be the first time really that I will, that we will meet as a whole team, like now 10 people. And one of the, of course, discussion points there will be like some future, like what's the future of liquidity? Is it a version two? Is it something else? Um, yeah, so I cannot say anything right now, but it's something we, we already have started discussing. We'll definitely kind of come back to what, what's next for, for liquidity uh, in, in a little bit, but um, I just want to still have a, a few more questions on LUSD and how it's backed by ETH. Um, because I think, you know, the reason why Maker started adding all these other types of collateral, as I understand it, is to allow DAI to scale, right? Because otherwise, DAI supply, and in, in this case, LUSD supply, is always restricted by just the amount of ETH out there. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I guess for you, it was more important to, you know, keep LUSD as decentralized uh, and, and kind of uh, just have the safer uh, collateral as possible than, than scaling it? I mean, we definitely prioritized um, decentralization over scalability. So I think we were pretty open about some of the limitations that liquidity has due to being just limited to Ether. I mean, we did improve upon the hard boundaries of our token. I mean, because like a lack of scalability can lead to a peg, a DPEG situation, which uh, we have experienced a bit like now, but at least we can say that we have those two boundaries at $1 and, and one ten. So it cannot go up to 130 or something very crazy. Uh, but even within that range, I, I completely understand that some people are a bit upset that they 
like we'll see maybe their loan go up by one or two percent when they want to repay. Um, I mean, we are now looking into ways of re like mitigating this. I mean, there are a few things that we can do, like by kind of incentivizing liquidity on, on Curve, for example. Like with chicken bonds, there will be like a, an automated way of incentivizing liquidity in a smart way, which can move then liquidity between the Curve pool and between our own stability pool. Um, so those are two ways that we can improve upon the situation. Um, and another thing was, I mean, that helped now a bit was that Faye, uh, like that is kind of dissolving their treasury. Now they, they sold um, like a nice amount, like 16 something millions of LUSD, which were previously locked in the Faye treasury, uh, which also contributed to this kind of LUSD shortage. Now that has helped um, to quite some extent. But yeah, I mean, there are limitations. We did our best to make the system or design it in a way that we don't artificially make it worse um, by kind of having the two boundaries pretty close to each other through this 110% ratio. And then also we, uh, we use this stability pool mechanism, which uh, doesn't lead to an extra, let's say, buy pressure on LUSD. Whereas in, in auction mechanisms or other systems, when they liquidate, then there's an auctions where multiple bidders, they need to buy the, the, like the whatever uh, stable coin and, and bid it and then it's locked. And so there can even be like an extra demand when somebody gets liquidated, which pushes the price up even further. We kind of avoid this by this stability pool mechanism that keeps the LUSD ready when it's needed. I guess th there are scalability uh, limitations by by just having ETH, uh, and and the risk for this is this um, DPEG uh, that that happens because you know like at times like these uh, LUSD supply is more restricted because people are incentivized to to deposit uh, rather than borrow. Um, but the way you mitigate this is with, you know, the, the different kind of stability pool mechanisms and, and the different boundaries uh, for it. Right. So there is like, a, like an inherent scalability issue, like it or issue. I would just say it depends on the demand for leverage on Ether. And currently, like there is not much demand for, for leverage that may change after the merge, hopefully. And, and as soon as the war is over, like which I, but I really hope it will also become like it, it will be a renewed interest, I'm sure. Um, but currently, it's, it's just hard to motivate people to borrow against Ether. If nobody really wants to go long on Ether or even increase their exposure, it's just hard. It's like it doesn't, like it's not our, I think, fault or anything. It's just like there is this lack cap, natural cap that people like are subject to. Right. I think it's interesting, you know, uh, this. I guess dynamic that we're seeing in, in the bear market, uh, it's it's kind of liquidity's first bear market, right? Since since it launched, and I guess kind of some of the first lessons that that you can take from this is that when there is just less demand to go long ETH, then that means there will be less LUSD supply, um, and and so that will that will put pressure 
on the peg to go above a dollar. I guess it's kind of a lesson from all this. Exactly. And and one thing I would change if I could go back, which I obviously cannot <laughs> uh, in this version at least, is that, uh, like I mentioned, this LQTY reward program, which is still ongoing and, and quite substantial. When you look at the APR, it's maybe around 7 or 8%, which is much more than what you would get on Curve or on Aave or Compound for a stablecoin. Um, so currently this leads to like an extra pressure and one way to change this would be to um, basically make it so that only borrowers who are depositors get this extra reward. So then it means that there is no buying pressure because just buying it on the market wouldn't give you the reward. You have to borrow it and then deposit in order to be eligible. So that would be, I think, one way or would have been one way to dampen a bit this extra pressure. But it will go down over time because the reward scheme is designed in a way that it fades away, but it will take some months um, until it will like become much smaller. That's so interesting. And I think it, it just goes in line with with learnings from this past bull market in general uh, about how liquidity incentives work. And I think what we've seen is that um, it's, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're really powerful token incentives, um, but the best way to use them are, you know, in, in exchange for like more concrete actions in, in protocols rather than, you know, just holding a token or just, uh, you know, having this like fleeting liquidity uh, provisions. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I think a lot of projects are, are learning the same thing that uh, token incentives are like can work, but they have to be used in just like very specific um, and targeted ways. Yeah, I think that's really something that many projects have faced that they're, I think Reflexor had some similar issue when they had some early incentive program and, and other systems as well. So it's really hard to anticipate how people would react and how attractive some of the incentive mechanisms are and why they are attractive or why not. It's been fascinating to see uh, just like how how traders react uh, to these token incentives. Accelerate your Web3 journey with Apex Pro. Apex Pro is leading participants with diverse backgrounds and knowledge to a new era of Web3 social trading. Access perpetual contract trades with up to 20x leverage on popular USDC collateralized trading pairs on a powerful trading engine. Scale to accelerate trades and increase usability while preserving your privacy and security. Grow and manage your wealth fairly and transparently with Apex Pro. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. In DeFi, the code that makes projects work is deployed on public blockchains that can't be stopped or censored. This is a crucial component of decentralization. Conversely, front ends, or the interface for users, most of the time are centralized, 
Only a handful of projects have decentralized frontends and Liquidity is one of them. Why did they decide to go this route? I think it is like a pretty straightforward decision if you look at the other decisions that we took, like just accepting Ether as our only collateral, also being immutable and um, non-governable, which puts us on the very top end of the decentralization scale. And by having this incentive mechanism to drive uh, like third-party frontends, I think that like, aligns well with our overall strategy. Of course, it also makes our lives easier from a legal perspective. So it was like this kind of direction we took was really highly praised by our lawyers. <laughs> uh, they really like this, both the US and, and Swiss uh, lawyers, because it, um, yeah, it just took, takes away one potential like risk factor as well from our company. And the cool thing is that by having those front ends, we are also making use of some marketing, uh, like what is it called, like indirect or affiliate marketing in a way, because the front ends, they have a vested interest in driving more turnover or more demand specifically for stability deposits to our system because they get their share based on this these amounts. So. Yeah, we hoped for some marketing activity that we would, or a, a larger reach through the many front ends. And we, we got it to some degree, maybe not as much as we hoped for, but uh, some front ends, they were more active than others. And, and they, one of them was there from the start. And for some reason, uh, they, they just took off and, and became the biggest one, at least in the first few months. They, I think they had the lion's share of like, 30% of the whole turnover. Currently, maybe there are around 25 or 30 active frontends. I mean, most of them are very small or not practically um, dead. I mean, if I can say it, I would like maybe say there are five, which are the main ones. And some of them really offer extra added benefits. Like they're not a simple frontend because we put out a launch kit, um, like which is really bare bones. Some of the front ends, they just took it, others, they improved upon it or did their own thing or integrated liquid into their own existing environment, which is, of course, way cooler than just taking our <laughs> launch kit. The incentive for de developers to create front ends for liquidity is the, the you know, L LQTY incentives, but do they also get a, a percentage of like fees or, or something else? Um, no, it's only the LQTY reward. I mean, they can set the percentage they want. They can split off uh, the fraction from the LQTY reward that would otherwise go to the stability depositors. And as I mentioned, this LQTY already incorporates the future value of the fees. Um, I mean, we, we are helping frontends as well if they need like technical help or we are supporting them. So it's not that they would have to do all the work themselves, but in some cases, like there are some technical, some technical advisory going on. Does the the fee that the user pay depend on the front end that they that they use? Uh, can you like whether user pays a fee to the front end or? No, no. Like if okay, so the the each each front end decides how much of the of the fee they're keeping. 
Oh, I guess it, it doesn't really matter for the user. Like they, they just pay 0.5% and it doesn't matter. So for the borrower, yeah, the borrower, for the borrower, it doesn't matter because um, the borrowing activity is completely unrelated to the fee and un, like unrelated, sorry, to the this kickback mechanism. So the front ends, they only get their share from the LQTY reward stream, which is only based on the stability deposits. So it's only the stability depositors, they would want to choose between front-end. So they sometimes, they, yeah, they, they, they just select the front-end with the highest kickback rate, which nowadays is 100%, whereas others may be fine with a lower um, or kickback rate of, like say, 95% because they, they benefit from other extras that the front-end may offer. So stability depositors have to pick which front end they they deposit with okay and what's what's the incentive i mean why would wouldn't all the front ends just uh, choose to keep 100 percent of the fee well i mean this this is competition if uh, if everybody does that you just need one that offers 90 percent and 10 percent goes to the user and then users if they're rational would go to this other front end and then Another front end could come and say, "Oh, I offer eighty percent and seventy percent." Ah, because the user gets gets a percentage back. Okay, I see. Yeah, I, I, maybe I got it wrong. Like, let, whatever part goes to the user, we call it the kickback, and um, and we just saw this race to the bottom. So now, I think the lowest is around ninety percent, and many or a few front ends now offer hundred percent. So it's all now pretty close to ninety five and and hundred percent. I think it's it's so interesting that you are just like delegating the um, the front end experience to to others because you know like I I speak with uh, developers and like founders all the time and the the like the the user interface is is such a huge part of the experience I mean it's everything right like um, so. I, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to to just like focus on kind of the backstage on like the the, the smart contract in in this case, and and just like you know rely on on somebody else to to figure out you know what the actual user facing uh, experience is. I mean, was it hard for you to do that? Like, I'd imagine maybe you had this idea of how how liquidity should use should be used. But you just had to kind of rely on, on others to, to make it happen. That's a good point. So, I mean, we had this launch kit that we put out and, and many front ends just took it, more or less as is, or a bit smaller, like design changes. Um, but then there were some front ends that changed the UI like pretty drastically. And sometimes in a way that wasn't maybe as favorable to the end user, or at least um, there was some case where it could lead to confusion around the, the, the functionality of redemptions because it was placed like maybe in a panel which people would mistake like mistook for repaying a loan. So things like that, of course, now are not under our control. Like they are done by a third party, and we can maybe ask them um, to change it, but it's not in our ability to really enforce this. So this this is also an interesting part. And there were also a few updates, like more technical updates in the middleware, because there is also like a library which facilitates the communication between the front end and the smart contract, which we 
updated a few times and then provided it uh, for download and for like those who run a front end. And then some took it, others didn't. So yeah, it's yeah, so it wasn't completely kind of hands off and and left to other developers. Like you still were able to have like some some sort of role on on how these front ends were designed. So yeah, but it was like not kind of an, a very deep collaboration. It's just like we do our own thing, and if front ends like it, they will take it. Otherwise, they wouldn't. In the roller coaster that's crypto right now, traders are looking for ways to smooth the bumpy ride. Pods Yield wants to help with just that. Pods Staked ETH Volatility Vault is designed to earn more both when ETH price goes up and when ETH price goes down. It's not a matter of if, but when the price will move. Pods uses volatility in holders' favor and makes more ETH whenever the price bounces. Find out more on pods.finance. Tornado Cash and the addresses that interacted with it was recently sanctioned by the US Department of Treasury. This prompted other DeFi protocols such as Aave and DYDX to blacklist those addresses. Robert discusses how DeFi projects can deal with censorship. Yeah, it, besides making our lives easier, it also um, makes it very likely that at least some of the front ends would be based in a country that's not subject to US sanctions law. I mean, we have front ends in, in Europe, Germany, we have front ends in, uh, in the Asian um, market and I think even Arabic language front ends and Japanese, I think even. So yeah, it's very unlikely that all of them would suddenly start censoring some addresses or yeah, users. What, what do you think is, is kind of um, the way forward with this? Um, I don't know, is there a kind of a way to, to make front-ends something that is kind of self-hosted, that doesn't have to rely on a, a centralized kind of server? Or I don't know, like, I, like what do you think this kind of design space looks like down the line? Yeah, so what you mentioned is also interesting because what we did, um, I mean, we pulled off our own mechanism to decentralize the front ends, but there are other ways. I mean, there is IPFS or there is RVEV, which allows you to um, host like or decentralize the hosting infrastructure rather than decentralize the operators of the front end. I mean, that's another approach, but I think it, it's similarly viable. Um, but and then there is another one which I find interesting, which is um, kind of how Definity, the internet computer, is designed because they are natively decentralizing the front end as well. So unlike Ethereum and I think practically every other blockchain, they they're not just hosting the smart contracts, but they're hosting the JavaScript, uh, like the, the websites as such on their like nodes. And, and that makes it like very easy to decentralize both at the same time and it's out of the box. So there are many ways of doing it. Um, obviously there is also the aspect of like who is incentivized, like there are costs of hosting and in, and you cannot just simply rely on, on people to behave altruistically forever. Maybe they, they are fans of your project, but uh, they will switch to another one and then they just abandon your 
system. So you have to make sure that there are long-lasting incentives in place. I also want to talk about um, about governance. So, you know, you've mentioned how this is like very governance minimized or or I don't know if there's like any governance at all in, in liquidity. Um, why, why did you decide to, to build this way and, and how, you know, if, if you were to do like a, a V2, would you keep this governance free uh, way of, of building? Yeah, so to your first point or question, um, I think one of the revelations or realizations was that for just managing the monetary policy, given the fact that we didn't have an interest, it was kind of easier for us to um, manage the system or control it from a monetary perspective. So we didn't need a governance to change parameters like interest rates or collateral ratios because we only had this one collateral type and we were pretty sure due to our analysis that like how we want to set those parameters. Um, and so there was the, the need for governance was less apparent um, than maybe in other scenarios, even though, I mean, we still created like a monetary system which runs not just a borrowing protocol, but it's kind of a, a stable coin, which, yeah, I mean, it has a few running or parts or like moving parts and it's not as obvious maybe to make everything completely uh, immutable. The only part that you can say is kind of governed is our Chainlink Oracle's proxy contract, because that's what we are using. I mean, we are not governing it, but there is a, some form of governance of this, this proxy contract that comes into play. But uh, yeah, I think we kind of, it worked out quite well. I mean, in the end that we, we didn't, it's not that I would go back and, and change and make some parameter now governable. That's not something I would do. Even though I think there are a few things that you can change and do better in a version two, the fact that it's not governable as such, I would try to leave it. Even though, I mean, it's also like a team decision. It, it won't be just me. I mean, I, I'm sure we will discuss this in the coming months. Like if we were to build a, a second version, like how would it be governed? One interesting, maybe middle ground is something I I used to call it, I think, as governance by competition, where you, per, like, it's a bit similar to what you already know from, from Uniswap or Curve now, that everybody can set up and instantiate a pool and then choose parameters for the pool. Um, so it's like the fact that you can permissionlessly add parts to the system and parameterize it, it also allows the system to evolve. So something like this, if we can build it in, that there is some way that people can experiment with it by adding components or parts that are parameterizable, that could be an interesting um, option. Why are you so happy with a governance-free system? So maybe it's also why i'm so unhappy with governance <laughs> yeah or or with the current state of governance i mean there are i think obvious um issues with with many governance systems i mean many of them are not even real really uh, or how should i say the dao is not acting directly it's just like a signaling vote and then you have a multi-sig or or some admin that just uh, should 
kind of do what the, the, like the DAO decides, but they not always follow it. So it's not really democratic. And even if it's like a real governance, like where the DAO can like kind of vote on a hash and then on an upgrade itself, it's still like it has so much, so many angles that you can mess with it, like flash loan. Like as long as it's at least attached to token ownership, I'm pretty skeptical whether this is a good way to govern systems. Maybe there are alternative forms, so there will be that are more kind of fair or sound where it's not just like the monetary token ownership. I mean, having locked tokens like in Curve is already a good step, but I think you can go even further. Uh, that you say it's not just the token holders that can vote, but like the other sh stakeholders like borrowers, for example, based on their duration or and, and size of their loan, and then also depositors could have a vote. Or like if I were to design um, a governance system from scratch, I wouldn't just base it on token ownership. Super interesting. Okay, I know we need to be uh, wrapping up. So um, why don't it... I, I'd love to finally learn about these uh, chicken bonds and what's <laughs> next for liquidity. <laughs> so chicken bonds is now really on our short-term roadmap, so it's, it's pr practically done. So we are just going through some front-end updates, but basically the contracts are, are done, they are complete, they are audited. Um, so this, I mean, in a nutshell, it's a bit hard to explain because it's pretty novel, but it's its aim is to acquire protocol-owned liquidity um, that may sound a bit similar to Olympus, but it's, it's, it's done completely differently under the hood. But what it really does, it, I hope that it works out as intended, it would basically accumulate a bucket of LUSD tokens that it can um, shift between or kind of deposit either to the stability pool or to the curve pool, like the LUSD3 pool, and it would do so based on the current tax situation. So you can just move tokens around in order to have like an extra stabilization layer. Because when you move tokens from curve to stability pool, you're basically um, selling um, or like you're trading against the pool so you can um, influence the price. Um, the way it does it, it's through a, a novel bonding mechanism where people can um, bond LUSD tokens. And bonding here is, is a pretty unique thing because you are principle protected, which means you can, as long as your bond is pending, you can always get your LUSD that you deposited back. Um, so you have this protection. Then whenever you want, there is no any like maturity period. It's like a perpetual you can decide to either chicken in or chicken out. <laughs> That's why we have this ch name. Chicken out is basically the fact of getting back your principle that re relates to this principle protection. But where the magic happens is the chicken in, uh, which basically means or implies a conversion. Like you give your LUSD to the system's treasury, to this POL that becomes protocol on liquidity, in return, you get another token, which is a boosted token or boosted LUSD. And this boosted LUSD has very like, interesting properties because it has a rising price floor, a bit similar to the C token in, in Compound or the A tokens in, in Aave. It would automatically accumulate an interest or like a yield, either from the stability pool or the curve pool or from both the combination. And it does it in a way that the yield is even amplified. 
like you get a higher yield per token than by just simply depositing to either curve or stability pool. And that's like the, like that should also lead to like a premium price. Like the booster token should trade higher than the, the original LUSD. And so people should have an interest or an incentive to become bonders because what they get back in return after a while uh, should be worth more. And the advantage for liquidity is that you get to use that LUSD in you know whatever way makes the most sense for the protocol at the time. Right. It's uh, I think it also goes by the name algorithmic market operator, um, which can do like those shifts and and use it in a way where it's mostly needed. And the, that boosted yield is still coming from the same place that the stability pool yield and the curve pool yield is coming from, from kind of the fees. Right. So it's it's basically the same yield, um, but it's amplified. Um, yeah, the, the, the exact mechanism is a bit hard to explain now, but uh, it, it has to do with the fact that you can all, you already start getting the yield from the pending bonds. Like those who have already chickened in and got their boosted tokens, they would get the yield from the pending bonds. So those are added to their own yield. So then there is more in total. And this whole kind of extra yield um, drives a flywheel. Because the more, like the higher the yield amplification, the, the higher the, the extra premium, and the higher the premium, the, the, the more interesting is to bond, because the higher the APR of bonding, and so on. And the more bonds, the more um, yield amplification we can get from the system. Is this protocol on liquidity a way to where, where you can push LUSD price uh, down? Like, like, would you be able to sell LUSD to the market as well? Yes. So it, it is a longer term um, goal. So it won't happen like within a few days, but it will start accumulating LUSD. And we hope, and we will also kind of explain it and market it in a way that should be really attractive to those who are currently already stability depositors. Like if we can offer a better deal for the stability depositors, like to like withdraw their deposits and bond the LUSD instead, then this fraction of deposits that gets withdrawn and put in chicken bonds will eventually become a movable mass. Like the liquidity can then be like put to the best place, so to say, where it can push the peg down. Like it would move. There would be like in the long term a movement from the stability pool to curve which is what we need right now. The idea here is that you don't have the principal protection and that's why you have the, the higher return for that because you lose that kind of security. So the principal protection you have as a bonder, what you lose or as a bonder is the yield during the time you are bonded. So it means you're giving away, it's a bit like pool together. Um, you're during the pending time of your bond, you are giving away your yield, but only, only your yield, your principal always remains protected. Okay, so that's that's coming up right now. And then what else? Like uh, you're going to um, think, uh, figure out the, whether you do the, the V2, uh, any other kind of uh, plans for liquidity? I mean, we have also looked into other like type of 
applications which are similar to monetary markets. Um, so, so I mean, we are not only thinking of like a version two as a long-term goal. There may be other directions as well where people can borrow existing tokens, for example, uh, rather than just our own stablecoin. But what we are seeing right now is this tendency with Curve and Aave to kind of moving from a monetary market a money market or like a DEX to a stablecoin system. So it seems that many projects that started as one specific type of DeFi project are incorporating more and more um, like functionality from other types of DeFi applications. So maybe we would do something like that. It's really open for now. We cannot. Yeah, I mean, it's subject to discussion. Okay, and then finally, I, I want to just get your general view of of DeFi, it's super broad, but I'm interested to hear what you think the space looks like in 20 years. Like, where is decentralized finance going in the long term? So 20 years is extremely long. I mean, I, I hope to yeah, see. I'm, yeah, I'm looking at like just like very big, mm -hmm. big picture. Like, where where does this end, mm -hmm. basically? I really would like to see more real world integration, but in a decentralized way. Like not just having like one bridge that basically is the issuer of, of one, one token, but by kind of natively issuing any like real world asset on the blockchain, which is recognized by, by, by law. In Switzerland, we have some regulation which goes in, in this direction, which would allow to basically move like a large fraction of the current GDP or like or the like the, the, the current like economy to the blockchain and then allow DeFi applications to do whatever um, crazy, like, like there is this, I think, notion of, of financial completion where you can, like you can basically monetize or like tokenize everything you can come up with in, in a way or another. I mean, that could be a direction, a very radical one though. Um, but it's, I think it kind of relies on some form of governmental recognition or acknowledgement. Otherwise, it would be very difficult. I hope that by doing, like by educating the right um, people in the right like governmental bodies, we can move them to <laughs> this um, over time. It, it will be a lengthy process, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I really hope that DeFi won't just remain all a closed ecosystem with like very hard to like people to get in or get out uh, because that would of course limit its scalability and also its usability for like John Doe or everyday users. And then last last question, uh, Robert, how are you defiant? <laughs> so I, I think just by putting out 5,000 lines of code almost in a completely immutable way um, when I told this or when I mentioned this to some people, they were saying, are you crazy? Are you completely nuts? That, that's, I think, something that not many people have done before. Uh, I think that's defying uh, also the odds of, like, if there is a bug, there is a bug, and we could be screwed. But I, I'm, I'm pretty confident now that, that we are fine. 
yeah, I think that was a pretty yeah, defined move. I agree. Very cool. Um, Robert, it's, it's been a pleasure. Super interesting what, what you've built. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, how it goes. Curious to see whether you do put out the, the V2. Um, but it's, it's, it's really cool to see someone just like building at the like farthest end of, uh, of decentralization. So um, thanks so much for sharing uh, all of your insights with us. Yeah, thanks you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.